Peter Counter is a prolific television and video game critic, originally from Toronto, who writes about culture and technology in Halifax, Nova Scotia. His essay, Saint Tornado Kick, was published in the 2019 award-winning anthology, Empty the Pews. Peter writes about horror on his website, and he's here to talk to us about his brand new collection of horror essays titled Be Scared of Everything. Thanks for virtually being here, Peter. Great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, and, and thank you for that flattering uh, introduction. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, so it's been a while since we've been able to do one of these, so I'd like to thank everyone listening uh, for your patience while we work things out. I'm pretty happy for our first episode back to be a horror episode during October and a global pandemic. <laughs> the book is Be Scared of Everything. First off, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your book? Sure. Well, it's uh, it's a collection. The subtitle is Horror Essays, and that's that's specifically, uh, I mean, exactly what it is. It's a collection of uh, twenty nine personal essays. It combines criticism and uh, narrative memoir um, in order to tackle topics as varied as you know. The first uh, essay is about Ouija boards. We have some stuff in there about chainsaws, found footage, uh, and then UFOs, uh, all sorts of things like that. And then through the, the memoir aspect, there's a bit of a through line about the value of horror as, as sort of it relates to processing trauma and uh, some of my own experiences in that as well. But I think overall, it's, it's just a, a pretty varied celebration of... Um, of horror, which is just one of my favorite things, sort of how I live my life. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned kind of how varied it is, because one of the things I liked about it is you cover so many multiple kind of different media forms. It makes it really accessible to everyone in that it's not tied to a specific medium or a specific time period or anything like that. Was the finished structure of the book sort of your plan from the beginning, or did you have other plans with it? Um, it was, well, the, the whole thing did start off as a, an essay collection. And I did always want to have this balance between criticism and narrative memoir. Uh, it started off with a very meticulous outline. Um, and that outline was more expansive than what the book ended up being. Uh, I have a really strong philosophy of you kind of put everything into a creative endeavor and then sort of subtract from it and, and shear it down to until you get there. So um, this is sort of the shape of it, but initially my ambition was sort of a unifying theory of all horror. And so there were, you know, essays on Twilight uh, and an episode of Adventure Time. I had an essay that was going to be about that. Uh, I was going to mention there's an essay that did make it into the collection that's uh, called Metaphysical Graffiti, which is about Led Zeppelin. And that was much more expansive initially in the outline phase. I was going to mention Mars Volta and how they recorded a, one of their albums, allegedly via dictation by a, an ancient Ouija board. And so um, uh, there was a lot that I that didn't make it into the collection. But overall, the the shape of it, the tone of it, that was that was what I was going for from the beginning. Well, that leaves open a uh, volume two of B-sides and rarities as well that you can put in next year. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, that that is something that's been in it from the very beginning. At the very beginning, I wrote um, a mission statement uh, for, for the collection. And um, part of that was 
that when I read a, an essay collection, I like it to sort of be like the experience of listening to an album where each essay, and this is true of short story collections as well, any sort of modular uh, book. I like ev the idea of every chapter being sort of like an individual track, which you can you can read on its own and it has value. But if you place it in the context of the larger tome, then you get something a little bit deeper. And I, I hope that that comes through in the book as well. But it was a very musical experience for me, too. I think that does come through, actually. I really enjoyed reading it and I found it did have sort of a, like you said, kind of a flow that you could kind of feel. Can you remember your first experience with what you'd consider horror media? Like, what was it that drew you in? Uh, yeah, I mean, my first experiences with horror were very early on. Um, there are home videos of me on my, like, third birthday. My parents got me the Ghost Ghostbusters Proton Pack costume, uh, and I was, like, running around doing that. And I have very vague memories of getting into the Ghostbusters cartoon. And then when I was a little bit older, I suppose I got into the Ghostbusters movies. Um, and that was also around the time, at a very early age, my family uh, introduced me to Jaws. And <laughs> through my cousins, uh, one of my cousins was my age and another is a year older than me. Um, I won't uh, ruin their credit by, by naming them. <laughs> In, in relationship to my satanic book, but uh, they got me into aliens uh, at a young age, too. And this is true of my brother, Nick, as well. Um, and so it was, yeah, watching Ghostbusters, Jaws, and Aliens, specifically the James Cameron sequel. Um, and yeah, those were those were my first those were my first experiences with it. And I think that part of the value of that was just always that you know, these were family movies, either with with Jaws and Ghostbusters. It was stuff we would talk about with my parents at the dinner table. We would always be quoting things. Quint is one of my dad's favorite characters and therefore, you know, pretty iconic to my brother and I. And um, Lewis Tully, uh, Rick Moranis's character from Ghostbusters. There are some lines of his that... Uh, a small quote of them. They're sort of like Simpsons lines, you know, um, where you can just say it within the context of my family and people will understand the full context of the joke and understand what you're saying. So it was sort of a, a social, a familial social thing for me almost my whole life. <laughs> so it sounds like Ghostbusters and Jaws were your sort of like gateway drugs into horror. What would you say is one of your favorite examples of horror that you feel is kind of a perfect example of what it can and should be. Um, I would say there are, there are two examples that come to mind. Um, the first, you know, this is a, a literary podcast. I'm going to go with the book example, but it's Shirley Jackson's novel, the haunting of Hill house. Uh, it's in my mind, almost a, if it's not a perfect novel, it's the perfect horror novel. I absolutely love it from the, very first lines of it to uh through to the end it just it's yeah it's the perfect haunted house novel um i i don't know what else to say about it i my, i get when i talk about it i get overwhelmed with emotion um and the other one <laughs> yeah 
I feel like I'm not alone. I feel I feel like uh, most people, if it's not the haunting of Hill House, usually Shirley Jackson will come up come up in there um, <laughs> in in anybody's top five. Uh, the other example is the Blair Witch Project, which is my favorite movie, and I I think that there is so there there are so many big iconic horror uh tent poles that we look at especially when we think of film uh there are all of these iconic monsters and and things and the blair witch project has really none of the none of the uh ingredients that would that would lead it to lead you to believe that it would be such an iconic experience um part of it is the way it was filmed um there's a really great uh, oral history of how the how the movie was made uh, that was written on Vice, I think, by a journalist named Tatiana uh, Tenreiro, I believe is her name. Um, I've only ever read her name. I don't know <laughs> how to pronounce it. Um, but uh, the way that it was filmed, <clears throat> according to this oral history, is that uh, the the actors themselves didn't actually know what was going to happen every day that they were filming. They would go out to these different places in the woods and they would find a tin, a canister with improv prompts that only they would know. Uh, and so day by day, things were, would keep going, even in the climax uh, of the the entire thing where they come up on a, uh, this scary haunted house where, um, well, I mean, I've already spoiled it so much, where they, <laughs> where they all die. <laughs> Uh, they didn't know that they would find a house that night. And uh, the there's so much of that energy in, in the building of it. Um, I've, I've, I firmly believe, and this is all throughout the book, that, that uh, horror is when order, when we get to the, the border of order. <laughs> I didn't realize that would rhyme. Yeah, I like when we that. get to the border of, of order and you uh, enter a, a space of unknowing and chaos. And... Bringing that into the actual process of making a film and to have it work so well. When I watch The Blair Witch Project, every time I, I watch it, my theory of what it's about changes just a little. And that's because there's nothing really to hold on to. And so I just think it it gets you there. And also it's like something like 90 minutes long. So you could watch it twice <laughs> in a night if you wanted. I'm glad you mentioned the Blair Witch Project because horror is kind of often seen as less than as an art form, I guess. Uh, and something like Blair Witch Project will kind of make it into the mainstream. But then horror kind of just slides back again to being taken less seriously. Uh, do you have any thoughts on why that might be? And do you feel like your book is sort of defending horror? When it comes to how it's seen, you know, before I get to the defense uh, of it, I would say I think that that reaction... Uh, is caused because horror is an intimate genre and horror, the emotion that you feel is an intimate feeling. And because of that, I think that people are very sensitive about what they don't like. And I think that that is true even for horror fans. And that's even true of me. There, um, There's an essay about uh, chainsaws in this book where I sort of show my hand and there are certain types of movies uh, that I really don't like. 
but even that reaction itself is is defensive on my part. I don't want to like torture porn style horror movies, and I come up with all of these reasons why not. Um, in the horror community, there's a term that's come about, I would say probably around, it's been around since maybe 2017. It's called elevated horror. And it it's sort of re- used to refer to movies uh, like Hereditary or The Witch uh, or Robert Eggers's more recent film, which Nova Scotians all know, uh, The Lighthouse. And that's sort of uh, this like class identifier that signals this is horror, but it's also art. And I think that people feel like they're not allowed to have that permission. Um, and largely that's just kind of based on what people what people like. Um, so I think that that's, I hope that that answers your question about why, why people feel this way. I think that Be Scared of Everything is, uh, you could certainly read it as a defense, but I think I feel like it's more active than that. I think that I sort of see it as this as a as a display and a celebration of the genre's value in both those higher and lower forms. I kind of mix it up, you know. Uh, there uh, in the Blair Witch Project essay that you you mentioned, um, or you know that we're sort of gesturing to here. I also mention. Um, <laughs> Uh, Resident Evil 7, which is a a seventh generation sequel <laughs> of a Japanese uh, pulpy zombie video game, and uh, it's about as low it's about as low art as as you can get. You really have to dig for meaning if you're writing about Resident Evil 7. <laughs> um, and I I feel like when it comes down to it. The emo- it's all about the emotions that they make you feel and the the thoughts that they make you have. And uh, whatever does it for you is that's that's good enough for me as long as you're exploring these these emotions that we don't really get an opportunity to uh, explore outside of these conversations. So I hope that people reading it don't necessarily see it as uh, a defense as they do uh, perhaps, you know, a gentle, suggestion that maybe it's worth giving horror or a new type of horror a bit more consideration it did come across as sort of a celebration to be honest and it it wasn't as basic as oh give this a chance but you just kind of outlined how it sort of affects your life and how horror can reflect the reality that we live in yeah i mean my partner emma who is also uh i would say one of the main characters of the book uh, was not a, a horror fan uh, while I was writing this book, um, but as I would, you know, for essays to to read and be like, hey, uh, you know, d- does this make any sense? I've been stuck in my office for five hours, sweating, listening to <laughs> Stairway to Heaven backwards. Does this make any sense? Please tell me. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, now she's really come around to to liking it, and so. I don't think that that's a Stockholm Syndrome thing. I hope it's not. <laughs> I can admit to that too, because horror is not a genre that I naturally gravitate to. I'll, I'll watch the occasional thing. And I, I, I loved The Witch and The Lighthouse, for instance, that you mentioned. But reading this book made me want to go and kind of explore some other things that I, that I hadn't dug too deeply into. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you know, uh, on that note, like like I, I mentioned a little bit before, I'm I'm really kind of... Uh, the term in, it, within the 
community is called squick. It's like what what makes you squick is sort of the the thing that uh, makes your skin crawl enough that you you really it's like that's that's too much for me. And um, you know for for me that is specifically certain types of torture. And uh, because of that, I had avoided watching one of the big one of the big ones, which is which is Clive Barker's Hellraiser, which is the one with Pinhead and the the torture demons called Cenobites. And I just would I didn't want to touch it because I was I know that there's things like flesh hooks in there and it's all about these BDSM demons that that torture you forever and ever. And uh and yet, uh, I was like, "Well, you know, I'm right. I'm writing this book. I've got to. I've got to face my fear. I've got to walk the walk." And I watch it. And Hellraiser One is one of my favorites now. And uh, so I, I did it. I did it to myself. <laughs> it's funny because that's one that I never got to as well. And I think you mentioned it at some point in the book. And I thought I should give that a shot. You know, I should find out what that's all about. It's it's worth it. It has a lot of practical effects uh, that are very fun to look at <laughs> nice. um and uh yeah I, I i can't recommend it enough um pinhead deserves his iconic status as uh up there with jason and leatherface and freddy krueger also we're recording this on clive barker's birthday so oh perfect birthday, clive <laughs> that was not an accident no <laughs> <laughs> you, you are a jigsaw like master of engineering so you mentioned the squick factor. Um, on the opposite end of that, what is it about horror that scratches that itch for people? Why do we like to scare ourselves and what does it do for us? Well, you know, I think that it comes down to the freedom. It gives you the freedom to explore bad things. Um, the way I like, to, I like to put it when I'm sort of pitching horror uh, is that it presents us with a better bad place. It shows you bad things that, that are happening, but bad things are happening in real life. And when you're watching a horror movie, when you're reading a, a horror novel, when you're playing a horror video game, when you're watching, there are some horror TV shows now when you're watching some of those. And those, when it's week to week, you know, if you're watching a horror TV show or it's like 12 hours long and you're streaming it, you really have to sit, you really have to sit in those emotions. And there is, uh, and I don't want to come off sounding too cynical, but I can't lie about who I am. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of a cult of positivity that you encounter, um, that many people encounter when they, when they suffer from uh, mental illness like depression, bipolar, PTSD, uh, where essentially the the idea of a bad thought and a bad experience that's sort of thought of as the cause of your distress if you're suffering from these things if anybody listening or you know if you have, have ever been depressed and you've expressed that to somebody who hasn't necessarily felt that or is who's feels distressed by the fact that you're in distress Oftentimes the reaction is, oh, well, don't think about that. Right. Don't think about, you know, thoughts. It, we could put a content warning at the beginning of this episode maybe, but um, don't, you know, people say like, don't think about suicide. Don't think about self-harm. But the fact is, is that sometimes you can't. 
What horror does, uh, at least for me, and I know for a lot of people that I've talked to who, who really appreciate it, uh, and, and it doesn't always have to be this dramatic, but what horror does is, is that it says, hey, for the next 90 minutes to, I don't know, if you're watching the director's cut of Hereditary, the next three hours, or sorry, uh, <laughs> Midsummer, the next three hours, what we're going to let you do is we're going to let you sit here, feel grief, watch somebody go through grief, watch somebody go through pain, and through the transitive po- properties of art, feel what they feel because it's all, you know, as Roger Ebert once uh, beautifully said, you know, movies are an empathy machine. And I would, ex- I would expand that to, to all sorts of entertainment. Uh, these, are, these are all empathy machines. You're empathizing with somebody who maybe doesn't get out alive. And that catharsis of being able to see somebody who is going through something that you've, you can relate to and then having that exploded in this wonderful hyperbolic celebration of gore and demons. Um, and then to, to come out alive, sure, maybe you're sweating, maybe you're sitting at the front of your, uh, at the edge of your seat, maybe you're, if you're watching Green Room, maybe you're, you're cradling your arm the whole time. <laughs> uh, you, you come out of that and you're, you feel physically... Um, like you've gone through a cathartic experience. Uh, and I, I, I can't speak enough to the value of being able to explore those feelings because the fact is, is that they're there, you know, right. and I do, I don't like this. I, these ideas that, that they are things that need to be ignored. I, I rather think we should, we should be exploring them. So that might have been a bit rambly, but uh, no, that was great. <laughs> hopefully, it's sensical. <laughs> and you can also experience this thing together. Like you don't often think of those types of thoughts surrounded by people, but you can go to a movie theater and there's a hundred people also experiencing the same thing and embracing that feeling. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing more um, more fun, I think, than if you're. <laughs> well, I should, I'm going to sound ill-adjusted to say this, but uh, I've I first watched Hereditary. <laughs> One when I was alone, and it, it blew my mind for uh, all of the reasons that I put in the book. And then I watched it again with Emma, my partner, and um, our friend Seamus. And Seamus had seen it, but Emma had not seen it. And watching watching that again, it's an absolutely horrific movie. At least three decapitations, I think. Don't <laughs> uh, quote me on that. Um, but... Being able to see other people react to the same way mm-hmm. does normalize it, and and you're like, oh wow, it makes it much less much less frightening too. But yeah, the the shared experience of it is is really really wonderful um, because we don't really have necessarily a language for these these dark places that we go uh, in our own minds sometimes. But uh, if you you know watch watch the Babadook you can talk about the Babadook together and how that makes you feel. And, uh, and that can be enough. I love that movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Not just because it's about a, a sort of cursed book, but it's just an absolute great movie. Yeah, absolutely. Scary one to find on your shelf. But exactly. I would say, yeah, it does one of my favorite horror tropes too, which is, uh, at least I have a memory of this. Yeah, where it's, um, it's a, a television feed where something uncanny is happening on screen. I absolutely love it. So one of the things that's great about books of essays like this to me is that you actually, through 
the kind of celebration of horror, I got to know you a little bit. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is um, your Christian upbringing and background. You mentioned that a few times and your kind of eventual becoming an atheist. Were there times in your life when you were kind of conflicted between the faith that you had and your love of the, the macabre? I mean, it's a really great, that's a really great question because uh, you would certainly think that. Uh, I think that there's, especially um, when it comes to things like American evangelicalism, there's this idea that uh, you don't want to even go near these forbidden dark media. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, as a as a Catholic, I was I. Um, neither of my parents are are religious, but my brother and I ended up going to uh, an Ontario Catholic school, and we were raised through that system. And the the Catholic school, or sorry, the Catholic tradition that I was uh presented was very mystical and so and and yet nobody was saying oh don't watch this don't watch that um catholicism and at least in my experience is extremely forgiving because you have the sacrament of reconciliation where if you do something bad you just have to give penance and and can and confess to a priest to god and then you sort of pray pray away your sins as long as you're pure in your intention it goes away so nobody's really like oh you we it wasn't a school where you couldn't read uh the bad wizard book um for a book report or anything like that so but um i so but it, that's not to say it didn't have an effect on on how i experienced horror because it really enhanced it to me especially specifically supernatural horror since I was already being told by my authority figures that demons and the devil and angels and God were all real and that the saints were real and, and the saints can do, uh, some of the saints, could, their miracles that they did in order to be canonized uh, were essentially like X-Men level mutant abilities or right. uh, magic. And so uh, I sort of thought that there were different tiers of horror and that when it came to Catholic horror, um, which is its own subgenre, I was like, well, that could happen to me. I could get possessed. I have a Ouija board that looks like Reagan's uh, in the exorcism. And when I saw that uh, and I saw what the demon Pazuzu did to Reagan, uh, I, it, I, it still kind of makes me, it, it almost brings me to the squick moment, you know, having having your body start to manifest signs of of uh, being trapped inside while a demon is is in you is very it was very terrifying to me as a as a child because I thought it was real. One as a bit of a tangent, sorry. Um, the there was one Easter weekend where uh, we were going to an Anglican mass at. Uh, in my my grandfather's town in Ontario, uh, Clinton, Ontario, and uh, I was sort of at the peak of my Catholic mysticism beliefs, and in the middle of the mass, I became convinced. I was like, "This is when I'm gonna get stigmata." Uh, <laughs> for people who don't know who are listening, stigmata is. Uh, this, I, I guess it's technically a miracle where 
uh, believers start to manifest the wounds of Christ. So you'd get, depending on where you think they are, uh, you'd bleed from your hands or wrists, your feet, your side, and uh, in a halo around your head where the thorn of crowns were. There might be some other ones in there. It's been a little while. But uh, it's also the name of a horror movie in the 90s about uh, a woman who goes, a non-believer who goes through it. And so I was absolutely convinced while, while we were there in mass, kneeling and standing, uh, it was before communion, and I uh, passed out. I fainted. Uh, and it turned out that it wasn't stigmata. I just had only eaten chocolate that morning. I hadn't <laughs> eaten anything, and it was really hot. Uh, and I, I passed out. I had to like go uh, splash water on my face in the in the priest's um, little uh, bathroom that he had in the basement of the of the church. And uh, yeah, not to get too gross, but I I threw up over the over the stairs uh, on my way out. But uh, yeah, so that's how much it was it was there. Um, uh, but I've, yeah, I've written about uh, kind of how embarrassingly earnest my Catholic beliefs were a lot. I get a lot of material out of that, I think. <laughs> I actually read your essay this morning, St. Tornado Kick, that was in Empty the Pews, and I absolutely loved it, where you talked about the, the saint who could kind of control the wind, and you were trying to use that in your karate. I thought that was incredible. <laughs> Thank you very much. I could I could uh, picture you doing that and just cheering you on <laughs> from my chair. Yeah, I didn't uh, I I didn't win any of those tournaments, but um, I do still have my chaplet of Saint Michael. It's right here, actually, by oh, my perfect. desk. So, uh, you know, you never really, you know, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. But you never you can't. But when it when things like that happen so early on in your life, it really forms the way you think about everything, and so. I can't really let go, at least that that old hope that, you know, maybe saying all of those prayers with those crystals in your hands might get the attention of St. Michael one day, even though, you know. So we talked a little bit about horror as um, sort of a catharsis, um, and another element in horror is trauma. And one of my favorite essays in the book, you wrote about the TV show Hannibal, where traumatic experiences are compared to a dropped teacup that shatters and it ushers in a new reality. And you wrote, it's the realization of impact, survival, and the assurance that trauma opens new ways of knowing. I wonder if you'd be able to talking about this essay in particular. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely will be. Thank you for, for asking. Um, yeah, it's called The Shattered Teacup. And uh, yeah, it's about the worst day and subsequent years of my life. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, specifically, you'd just like to know about where it comes from or the intersection of it or basically where it comes from and how using that episode of Hannibal kind of helped you contextualize kind of your own life. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, I'm just trying to, trying to find a good starting point. Sure. When I talk about it, uh, pardon me, but cause it is it, the, the thing about, um, the post-traumatic experiences, it sort of can tangle your thoughts a little bit and so it uh it is a little bit hard to parse but um essentially uh actually maybe i should give some background for for readers so uh in 
or for readers, for listeners, readers will know they read <laughs> the essay. Uh, the background is, is that um, when I was 19 in uh, 2006, don't dox me with this information. Um, over Christmas holidays, my family went on a Christmas cruise vacation in Costa Rica. Uh, my father and I were, um, were just walking through town uh, in a area we were told was safe and um long story short we were confronted by a uh a man with a gun my dad was shot and i had to uh drag him back to the the ship everything turned out fine but it was a really uh traumatic experience and in the the subsequent uh years while i was uh you know in theater school it was really tough to understand what happened to me and how that event would fit into the rest of my life. Because all of the stories that I'd been told um, up until then, or at least the stories that I was, you know, I was a 19 year old Canadian white boy. Um, I, <laughs> I wasn't necessarily the most versed in in different types of stories uh traumatic stories especially or post-traumatic stories especially but uh the traumatic moments in your traditional media happen right before the end you know everything happens and you you sort of are taught this when you go through any sort of creative education that is focused around commercial storytelling is uh it's like well, why is this happening now? Because the story should be about the most important moments. It should be everything that leads up to the most important of, moment of a person's life. And then it ends. Because otherwise, why is anybody watching? And when that happens to you and you're 19 years old, um, it's difficult because it sort of frames the rest of your life as an epilogue. Uh, and right. so it took a long time for me to to see anything like that reflected back at me uh, in the media. When it came to Hannibal, uh, it sort of lives in that epilogue space because it's uh, it's almost sat satirical how it adopts the the police procedural of you know your laws laws and orders. Is that the proper pronunciation? <laughs> your laws and orders and your CSIs uh, and your NCISs. And it, uh, it takes, it, as I said before, you know, horror is, the, uh, is beyond the border of order. This is what uh, Hannibal does because the, the epitome of, of order is the police procedural. It's saying... Oh, there is a law and it is going to be set straight by the end of this hour. In Hannibal, it does not do that. Um, it's there's a terrible thing that happens. Uh, it goes through all of the CSI-esque beats where they solve a case, they find out what happened, they even catch or kill uh, whoever perpetrated this horrendous thing you saw at the very beginning. But at the end, it always lands on a beat of uh you absolutely are not safe you are still not safe and that's the journey that leads up to that shattered teacup moment at the end of season two uh 
which the Shattered Teacup monologue is from deep inside the Hannibal Lecter universe. Uh, for those who only know the show or perhaps somehow don't even know Hannibal Lecter, uh, the show is based on the novel Red Dragon, which is one of four uh, horror novels by Thomas Harris. And, uh, and this monologue is straight from uh, the third novel, Hannibal where uh, Hannibal Lecter essentially talks about his own traumatic experience of having a teacup, it dropping on the floor, shattering. And his frustration as he looks at it, hoping that time will reverse and make the teacup whole again. And it's placed as sort of a metaphor in the, in the television show where after that moment of the teacup shattering. The, he says this moment when he maims and almost, uh, it seems like he kills every main character and everything is revealed. He Up until then, he sort of works for the FBI and he essentially comes out as this um, godlike, uh, terrible demiurge style cannibal and, uh, and then fucks off to... Italy. Can I swear? I'm sorry. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) That's exactly what he did. Oh yeah. He he fucks off to Italy. And then for the last season, which is divided into two sections, the it's just the third season. uh, It kind of does away with that procedural. So that I felt really mirrored the experience of, of trauma for me is uh, the very first episode of Hannibal the main character, Will Graham, is traumatized. And it's very clear that he's going through PTSD symptoms and he's trying to maintain order uh, through this procedural and through working with Hannibal, who is pushing him in the direction of enlightenment. And then when finally he gets that final push and Hannibal abandons him so that he has to go search for him, he abandons all semblance of order. And just goes into essentially uh, reading reading the sharp objects, as it were, of what uh, of what was left on the ground from the teacup. Um, I hope that was coherent. There was a lot there. <laughs> no, absolutely. And yeah. I've I watched Hannibal a few years ago, and like I watched all that. But the way you wrote about it was just so amazing, and how you kind of connected it to kind of dealing with trauma. I just thought was incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, um, I, it was also, it also is a show that has a, a deep, um, a deep place in my heart, uh, because it was one of the very first shows that I was ever paid to write about as a TV critic. And so, uh, I, I was, I was just, I couldn't write a book without putting that in it. And I've read like working in a, a store that deals with media. I read a lot of reviews or kind of, you know, deep dives into various things. And, you know, a fair number of them are not that interesting. Uh, I'll say it. Um, <laughs> but the level that you kind of went into that was just really great writing. And I, I can't thank you enough for being open to talking about it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was also interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the cult of positivity. For some reason, we, we can all agree that things can happen in your life that will change your life forever. And we all agree that, you know, there's self-help books out there. There's thousands of them that read this, your life will be better. But people have a hard time understanding that something bad could happen that could also change your life. They want to pretend that it didn't happen or why haven't you gotten over that? 
by now. And mm-hmm. I, I think that some of the horror movies you've mentioned um, really kind of explore that really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm sure there's probably space for recommendations later, but um, there's a, there's a horror author that I absolutely can't uh, allow to not be mentioned after something like that. Uh, Paul Tremblay, uh, who wrote Cabin at the End of the World and has a new book out called Survivor Song. Uh, he's he's an author that I think um, really understands that transformative uh, nature of, of trauma. You know, his books really don't go back to to square one, you know? And I think that that's a defining trait of the best horror. Well, I'll check those out. So following that, I'm just, I'm holding the book here and I'm looking at it. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about the cover, because I've seen on Twitter that you're very proud of it. And as you should be, because it's just <laughs> magnificent. So like, we can't talk about this book and not talk about that. Yeah. Oh, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I am, I am proud of it. I, uh, it's not something that I had very much to do with in, ter- in terms of the actual creation of it. I essentially uh, received it along with, I, I don't want to get too much into the the behind the curtain process, but there were other other concepts. But this was the first thing I saw, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Holy moly! This is this is my book." Um, it was like a slightly less finished version. There were a few more lines and stuff like that. But working with Megan, the uh, the art director at Invisible Publishing, who is uh, absolutely, you know god tier in terms of uh book design in in my mind one of the most exciting things about getting to write a book for invisible was that i knew that megan was gonna design it and i was like oh my god this is so good and then even then this exceeded my expectations so yeah um you know i i i just pulled pulled the book off my shelf here and it's I'm holding my hands and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe it. But enough gushing about my own book. The uh, process of it, I essentially told Megan what was important to me about the book. I was like, oh, well, I, it's, you know, there's a lot in here. And I, I, I think that I'd like to have as much of it represented as possible in, in ter- terms of a celebration. And then I really underlined that. Uh, especially, you know, as an ex-Catholic or a lapsed Catholic, um, there's nothing I love more, nothing that tickles me more than uh, sacred geometry. And having sacred geometry on on the front of the cover was, I was like, if you can do something like that, I would love it. And uh, I had no idea it was going to turn out so perfectly. But um, yeah, it's been a long, uh, a long-held dream of mine to have my name on the front of a cover uh, that also has a pentagram on it. (laughs) And I know it's not supposed to matter. It's what's inside that matters, but I'm, I'm a sucker for a good cover and that's an extremely well done job by invisible publishing. I would say I like, I agree. I agree with you, but I also, you know, my partner is a, is a designer and I can say that I, you know, if don't judge a book by a, by a bad cover, but quite often, if a designer has put a lot of work into it, like uh, specifically with this, you know, Megan clearly knows the content of the book. And I think that was what made me fall in love so much with it is that every symbol on here on the front of the cover can be traced back to a passage in the book. And, and I, you know, if you like the look of this, I mean, you might not like my writing, but 
every image on this cover is in the book. So if you want to just go for a scavenger hunt. I kind of did that afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you can you can see them all, right? You got the the insect wings, you got the I mean the mushrooms could be uh reference to two different things. You got the uh UFOs for the Blink 182 essay, Cthulhu, everything. All right, so now we're at the point of the episode where we talk about what we're reading. Uh, Peter, what have you been reading lately? Uh, well, I just finished uh, Hench, which is the new book by Natalie Zena Walshots, uh, who is a friend of mine, who is her first novel, and it's a fantastic uh, book about sort of this temp agency uh, in a superhero universe uh, for the temp agency supplies henchmen essentially to the villains. Uh, and it's a really great, uh, a very fun book, first of all, but it's also a really great commentary on, on the gig economy that uh, so many of us millennials have been conscripted into. It felt very real. And uh, as a fan, obviously, after everything that we talked about, as a fan of, of uh, genre allegory that speaks to pain in my life, uh, I absolutely love it. I also f- recently finished... Um, or not not too recently, but recently enough, I would uh, I would say finished Mexican Gothic by Silvia Marino Garcia, and I like that book enough. I like that book enough that I made a literally eleventh hour change to one of the essays in in this book, the Lovecraft essay, uh, to make sure it was included as a, a good example of Lovecraft revisionism. Uh, also, uh, earlier on during the pandemic, I ordered from you the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I'm still reading <laughs> in between all of these, uh, all of these other novels. I'm, I'm still reading Lord of the Rings and, uh, it's very, very fun. And, um, just, I think it was maybe Saturday morning because it's officially spooky season and there's nothing I love more than, uh, Junji Ito's uh, horror manga when it comes to uh, being spooky. I reread one of my favorites of his. It's called The Hanging Balloons, and it's just an absolute nightmare of ink on paper, and it's in his uh, relatively recent collection called Shiver, uh, which, yeah, I can't, you can read anything by, by Junji Ito. He has, uh, he has some new ones coming out this year, actually, that, uh, I recommend too. It's it's pretty much all good and all nightmarish. So <laughs> perfect timing. So I just read uh, my year of rest and relaxation by Otessa Moshfag, which I've been kind of curious about for a long time. But I finally decided to kind of pull the trigger and read it um, because I heard that uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is going to make a film of it, and he's one of my favorite um, film directors. So I was really excited to hear that. And oh, that's fun. it's a, a story about an unnamed protagonist who uh, lives in New York, a young, beautiful woman, but has decided that she wants to spend a year basically sleeping and that that is what she needs in her life. And to be able to do that, she just limitless number of prescription medications that she gets from this psychologist that while you're reading it, you kind of can't even tell, like, is this person even real? Um, So she'll go home, she'll take some of these medications, she'll mix them all up, and then she'll watch VHS movies that are just not stimulating enough 
but like will lull her to sleep. And then she'll wake up and kind of do it again and again and again and trying to sort of almost like chase the dragon of not being conscious. And it's a it's a very interesting and a very strange book. It feels kind of like a dream as you're reading it. Um, yeah. And Otessa Moshfeg is just extremely good writer. So highly recommend that. Um, and I've also been reading the Icelandic sagas, which is something I've been meaning to read for years and years and finally picked up as well. And they're very interesting. There's not a metaphor to be found in them. They're just very straight. Um, it'll say like Newt, son of Hron, went to town and did this. And then this happened. And then he did this. And because he did this, so-and-so did not like that. So-and-so did this. And it's great sort of like kind of, it's interesting, but it like turn your brain off a little bit. They're just flat out plot-based things. And you can sort of, you know glean your own morals from them like don't do what this guy did because maybe this will happen but there's absolutely no kind of morals or like like underlying point i guess that they're trying to make <laughs> yeah it's like very algorithmic sounding it's yeah exactly just like a, reading a flowchart of human action yeah and then <laughs> there's like hundreds of characters it'll just kind of mention the son of the brother of the daughter of and just these amazing icelandic names throughout the whole thing just an extremely oh, fun wow. thing to read that sounds great. <laughs> uh, 